1: Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Welcome to FYI, ARK's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week, I talked to Austin Petersmith, founder and CEO of Capiche, a startup that aims to bring transparency and trusted reviews to the world of enterprise software. The SaaS industry has blossomed in recent years with dozens of tools being used across productivity, communication, Databases and DevOps. Austin gives an overview of how the modern SaaS industry was born and what's coming down the pike. Maybe just to get started, I'd love to hear about your background. How did you get the idea to start Capiche and how did you get interested in enterprise software?
0: Yeah, so I guess it's kind of like a culmination of, a, of like my career. So I guess I'll kind of just walk through it. So I initially was in journalism. I worked as an intern at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and got my master's. In journalism at Northwestern, and was kind of pursuing being a journalist or working as a freelance reporter in Washington D.C. And eventually, kind of found my way to Silicon Valley. I was always interested in technology, and I was also a little bit terrified of my prospects after taking out huge student loans for my prospect as a journalist to actually be able to like repay those. And and so something drew me to to Silicon Valley. So I moved up to San Francisco and joined a small startup called Singly that was building developer APIs and ended up kind of being a developer evangelist, primarily in like running marketing and building community. And so I got the chance to like really get into, to learn a ton, like start learning how to code and just learn how kind of the tech industry works and meet tons of developers who are just like building cool stuff on the internet. And that was a really awesome kind of segue for me into the world of technology. and, And I got to kind of like, see it from this angle of developers. And then the Singly was later acquired and joined this company called AppCelerator that was selling into the enterprise. And they had been kind of a developer open source product that was going through this shift after raising lots of money where they were going to be like selling into the enterprise. And so what I learned when I got to see that is when you make that kind of decision that we're going to like become this enterprise company, then you kind of call up, you start building a team of yeah, of like sales folks who have done this before and build a big budget. You call up Gartner and the other analyst firms and build a relationship with them, which it's a relationship, but it, it involves paying them lots of money and taking their analysts out to dinner and things like that. And so I got to see kind of how that works. And we had a product that developers loved and was very popular around the world with like a huge amount of developers. But the enterprise use case was not fully formed and there was not kind of too much uptake on it. But we still... Found ourselves on the Gartner Magic Quadrant being recommended to all these Fortune 500 companies. And so Fortune 500 companies were showing up and asking and like wanting to use it. And that was purely because we kind of went through the hoops that you're supposed to go through. And so I got to sort of see how this world works. And that is not to me how it should be. <laughs> um, I think if when you have an organization like Gartner that is has wields so much kind of authority to kind of direct large the biggest companies in the world on what they're buying, Um, there should be a little bit more kind of purity to it. And they should be after the interest of the customers, not the vendors. So I got to see that kind of up close and then worked at a handful of other startup over the years. So that was back in like 2014. And most recently, I was running a company called Inside. And when I was there, we were buying tons of software. And so I like also kind of, in a more kind of personal way, got to feel the pain of just like, it's very hard to find the right tools. And there are all these review sites out there and they are kind of similarly pay to play. And the vendors themselves, or if you're just Googling, you always, you're always you finding all this, this content that is just written by the vendors and the narrative is kind of controlled by the vendors almost everywhere you go. And I was comparing that to private conversations where I just like call up a friend and say, hey, what are you using for CRM? And they'll share these like really candid and really honest and insightful kind of thoughts about what they're using, how they're using it, why they chose it, how much they're paying, and all these things that you just can't get anywhere else. And
2: It's so true. It's like every time I try to compare two pieces of software, you get a bunch of comparison websites pop up, but there's no actual Yelp or like open door kind of experience for enterprise software, which is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, to me, yeah, I mean, that's one of the frustrations I've had. And it's like, there are these review sites, but they don't do a great job of getting a lot of depth And mostly the way they get their reviews is through this gift card exchange where they tell a SaaS vendor, like, hey, Salesforce, we will give a $10 Amazon gift card to any of your customers who you convince to leave a review. And so then Salesforce says, I'm going to email this out to all the customers that I know love us. And so then it's this like kind of self-selected thing. And it's all done in the transactional way. And you just compare that to the depth that you get from from a peer who's like a fellow founder or someone who's in a similar role to you at a, at a different company who's going to share like what they actually think. And that difference is just so massive. And so what we sort of set out to do was to build a place where we can kind of build community around those more honest, more insightful conversations where you can actually get to the kind of the core of the problem and encourage the vendors to be a part of the conversation, but never let them control the narrative the way they've been able to through all these other channels. And so that's kind of what we're building with Capiche. It's basically a user community for all of SaaS and people come to to help. It's like users helping users. So helping you kind of navigate which product to buy. Pricing transparency is kind of a really huge part of it because that is where there's like so much opacity. And so people are sharing on Capiche kind of what they are paying, but then going beyond that to like, here's what we were initially quoted, here's how we negotiated, here's how we were able to kind of get them to pull these different levers to agree to this price. And it's kind of unlocking this level of transparency that people just haven't had where otherwise you have to kind of do demo calls with these sales teams in order to get any sense as to what you would actually be paying. And yeah, so we're, we're just building a community of people that want to kind of help each other make those decisions with a little bit more information.
2: I see. What is Capisha's mechanism to acquire users so that they will be willing to engage with your platform, provide content and help other people?
0: So far, it's just been kind of organic, like word of mouth. And so, and it's a private community. So you have to actually apply to join. It's not invite only. And so if someone can kind of demonstrate, first of all, who they are. So everyone is signing in with Twitter and, and it has to be tied to an identity. So you can't like create an account with your company Twitter account or anything like that. And so it's all tied to identity. And then in the application, we just ask you to, to like write a couple of posts about the software that you're using and what you think about it. And as long as people are sharing stuff that we kind of believe to be fairly accurate and to be insightful, then, then we will let you into the community. And it's mostly just growing that way through sort of word of mouth. People, A lot of people come... Particularly with interest in the pricing stuff. But then we've actually seen kind of, it's like people show up really interested in seeing pricing transparency, but then end up actually getting all this value from the community on things that go way beyond pricing. And so no real kind of at scale efforts to acquire users at this point. Right now it's just like, it's been growing steadily. And so as long as that's happening, then we are much less focused on like, we don't, the other review sites want to say like we have. 10,000 reviews of Jira or Trello or whatever. And we are much less focused on that. We are more interested in like, how many times has one of our users helped another user make a good decision? And that's not the easiest thing to measure. But that is the type of metric that we are far more interested in than any kind of scale of traffic or user accounts or you know, reviews or whatever else.
2: Cool. That makes sense. I'd love to zoom back here because I think zoom out a little because uh, I think a lot of people are maybe not super familiar with kind of enterprise software and SaaS or why it's so relevant. And I think maybe one post that really summarized the situation really well was something you wrote back in September last year, the enterprise software is dead just business software now. Could you kind of maybe just walk through the high level of that blog that you wrote and kind of what is the state of software for productivity today?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I think basically like the idea, the premise of that post was was kind of a few different things that I've seen kind of trends, I guess, that are coalescing in this larger thing. And so the kind of widely talked about thing is bottom-up adoption of, of software. So you used to sort of have, the buyer in an organization was basically a handful of people at the top. It could be the CEO, CIO, um, some other executive. And basically, they kind of would—they only answer in an upward direction. So it would be like the board basically is who they kind of answer to. And they would make decisions in a pretty conservative way of which purchase is not going to get me fired. And that's where the, there's a famous adage in enterprise software that nobody gets fired for buying IBM. And so it was kind of this thing that... And it was very true. It was like you could take a risk on some new thing. But nobody would ever do that because if your board is coming to you and saying, why did we spend all this money on this new tool that's not working? You have no answer. But if you buy IBM and it's not working as well as it might, then you can still say to the board, "Like, look, all of our competitors are using IBM. We bought the same thing. Like, Sorry, it's not working as well as we wanted it to. But at the same time, you can't blame me because it's just the same thing everyone else is doing. And that was kind of the way that it worked. And So basically what we've seen, I'm just going to pull up the post so that I make sure I kind of cover the core points um, because I know that I'll I'll forget a couple of pieces here. But so SaaS, I guess, is the other sort of huge trend that ties into this. And that has kind of been, again, like really widely covered the shift from very expensive on-premise software that you have to pay annually and switching costs are very high to SaaS, which is lightweight in the cloud oftentimes self-service and monthly, and so you can an organization can kind of switch and people can try things much more easily. And so if you're a an individual in an organization, you can start using Zoom today. Whereas 10 years ago, if you wanted to, you know, try as an individual to use a different tool than what your organization was giving you, then you were kind of stuck. You kind of just have to take the tools that are handed to you. And so that kind of, I guess, has been obviously a much wider trend. And then more recently, sort of, the people talk about the consumerization of enterprise software, and that is basically these tools are where it used to be software kind of that was handed down through these companies was it was just work software, and and it was not scrutinized from a like user experience and design perspective. And I think Slack and Dropbox maybe are a couple of the kind of early companies that really focused on user experience and creating a delightful experience particularly Slack where you had in the first couple of years 2014 2015 there was like a level of kind of pride that people had in in using Slack and they were excited about it and they, and they really liked it and they would kind of talk about it in a way that that people talk about consumer products like it was cool to have Slack like it's cool to have the new iPhone and that was a very new thing for it was never cool to have sap versus or whatever and yeah. and so that was a very new kind of development and then another piece is basically the number of tools that these companies are using is has exploded so it used to be kind of one kind of solution a, a thing like sap that would feed you all sorts of different tools and that is kind of your like core tech stack and now in just individuals are using 50 or more different SaaS tools at that they touch throughout the year and and an organization might have quite a bit more than that. And so all these things basically kind of coalescing together have kind of created this huge shift where there was this accountability, the decision makers kind of were only looking upward and that has shifted to where as an individual, if I, again, the bottom up kind of shift, if I'm an individual and I want to use Zoom, I can do that. And so then these products will kind of grow virally and in, within an organization and, and kind of become popular. And then that CIO who previously would have said, sorry, we are sticking to Microsoft Teams because that's what we bought and that is the conservative choice, whatever. It used to be that they would not have kind of, they wouldn't face any repercussion by telling the rank and file, you have to use this tool. But today there has been a power shift where the people up and down an organization have a new voice where they can say, no, we want to use this tool. And if they say that, they can they can kind of rise up and push against the pushback, and you know it's not like a kind of revolutionary thing, but it is new kind of level of accountability. Because if you're the CIO and you chose a tool that your employees hate, and they have this new voice to kind of say that and to point to the tool they'd rather be using, then that's going to create real pain for you in your quarterly reviews and and everything else. Just the same way that the, the board being disappointed in you would create that and so it's a pretty massive shift it's it is to me not just about the kind of bottom up growth but it's that all these things are starting to less and less reflecting the kind of old enterprise software world where you had analyst firms and it was like back rooms and cigars and steaks and all these things that like go into the decisions of like what people are going to buy that's just not how it's going to work in this world there are that still does exist but increasingly the kind of Decision maker is everyone up and down an organization, and those people don't care what an analyst firm has to say, and they're not going to be at that steak dinner with the cigars. And so they are much more interested in like, what do my peers in other companies use? Why do they use it? How do they use it? And do they like it? And kind of the way that you would approach as a consumer, it's like, why do I choose the iPhone? Why do I choose the Roomba over some other robot vacuum or whatever it is? And that is kind of the way that that people rank and file in these companies look at these tools. And so when you think about those people becoming the new kind of decision maker and the new place where the kind of power is centralized around purchasing decisions, it is a massive shift. And you can start to see how these like analyst firms are not going to be as relevant in that new world.
2: Mm-hmm. let's talk about these analyst firms because i find this very fascinating and by analyst firms we're really talking about industry analysts you know in the finance your buy side and sell side analysts these are the industry analysts like idc gartner forrester and they are supposed to come out with authoritative reviews and recommendations on on enterprise software on market forecasts market sizing i see them all i'm a consumer of their research from from that perspective and my impression of their business model has always been, oh, it's people like us, investment firms that pay you for your you know, industry reports on you know, iPhone, on, on smartphones and, and database software. But from your perspective, there's a, well, from the perspective of software developers, there's another story, which is you have to choose with them to get them to include you in their product reports. And that is also a monetary relationship. I don't see that I guess, pricing structure disclosed anywhere on the website for Gartner and Forrester. So how does all that work?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, they have every right to take money from whoever they want. It's not like they have a form on the website where you say, (laughs) pay $500 and get your company mentioned in this report or something. And so it's all a bit murkier than that. But they have found a way to build a very profitable business that makes a lot of money from both sides of this marketplace. And my view is that they, by doing that, have ended up as being a little bit more subservient to the vendors than they are to the buyers. And I think it's obviously there's tons of good work that happens at Gartner. And I don't like, it's not like I think that the whole thing is just horrible, but for the, because they also provide cover for people that make those buying decisions. Again, like going back to the IBM thing, you can point to the Gartner report and say, we bought the thing that Gartner said. And so it's like, it really works for that old world, but I just don't think that, the people who are are kind of driving the waves of software adoption in these companies, I don't think that they particularly care what Gartner has to say. And so I think it's just, it fits very well with the kind of centralized decision maker at the top model. And I think, I mean, in terms of the actual thing, like I said, it's it's all very indirect, but you would be very hard pressed or it might actually be impossible to find a company that is in those Gartner magic quadrants and is not paying Gartner money. And
2: um, how much are we talking here? How many figures?
0: So usually it's kind of related to analyst time and it like upward six figures or more kind of is typically the, yeah. Wow.
2: And what do they call this and it, service? Like, what are you paying for?
0: in the, like? It's like an res- analyst, analyst relationship. So you have an analyst. Oh, it's a retainer. Call. Sort of. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so they don't guarantee anything. It's not transactional in that way. And and again, I think like there's, I don't want to kind of sound like I'm saying that it is all just everything you read there is just, is just for sale because that's not. The way they've built this amazing business is they do a lot of really good research and they kind of have provided a ton of value to lots of businesses. But if what you want is a company that exists to serve the interest of you as a buyer and to get you that, Product that's actually going to solve your your need above all else, then that's just not what their kind of model is, and that's a little bit more of what we're trying to build here. Gotcha.
2: We've run through similar problems as your customers. You know, we just we tried to decide we want to use Slack or Teams, we want to use Zoom or Life Size. I'm sure you hear a lot of these stories. I guess this the general formulation of this problem is, do you use the kind of well-known product from an existing company that's pretty good, or do you use a startup product that seems to be favored among uh, the early adopters? Maybe it's best in class, but that's a little bit more out there and, and, and not as enterprise What have you learned from kind of just people weighing both sides of this equation? What makes more sense? Is there like a correct answer?
0: Yeah, I mean, so I think... So part of the way that we look at this is that there isn't a correct answer. So like I've seen a lot of people kind of, so there's a, a website called Wirecutter that's owned by the New York Times. That's really popular for consumer products. They do a great job of like breaking down a category and saying, this is the best TV for most people to buy. And and a lot of people have kind of said, why doesn't that exist for SaaS? And yeah. my take is just that there it's because there's not, there's not a best CRM for most people because the use cases are just range so massively. And so I think, to me, it's less about like, do you take the conservative, reliable, old thing, or do you take the new shiny thing? And it's more about like, there are, for any particular problem set that a company is facing that they want to solve with software, there are probably dozens, if not more, potential tools for them to be looking at. And, and so it's more about the kind of the specifics. What is the right solution to our specific problem? And so what is the best CRM for companies that are doing field sales in rural areas and have like a ACV of $10,000 a year I don't know whatever it is so like to find what is working for people who have a similar problem is much more useful than to have it be summed up as like this tool is five stars for everybody and is the best in class and so that's kind of like I guess how I look at it and I'm trying to remember if I veered off from your for something there.
2: I understand how that would be true for a customer relationship kind of management software. But for something like Slack and Zoom, where it seems like the basic use case is the same. We want to do multi-video chat or multi-party chat, multi-party video. Even then, it seems like people have wide disagreements. We tried Slack and, and Teams, and we, we ended up picking Teams, even though we're a pretty small company. I think you've had similar stories from your customers, too.
0: Yeah, so that... Nobody should assume that the big old companies are unable to deliver fantastic user experiences. And I think there's more like popularity and like social trend happen- that, is, that is playing into which tools are kind of taking off. And so there are tools that are like hot and superhuman, for example, is, is a great example of that. An email client that is paid and kind of became with, through a waitlist, they became sort of a almost a status Symbol for the people who are using it, and and that is a new trend. And so I think that it's there are a lot of factors. I think we definitely aim to drive conversations that are open to those things. So we have people that have defended Microsoft Teams on Capiche, and mm-hmm. um, and make a very clear case. And actually, just today, I think I tweeted it out, but my sister was uh-huh. was texting me and was saying that she thinks the video quality is so much better on, on Microsoft Teams than Zoom and a handful of other points that she had about why it's better. And obviously, Zoom is like all the rage right now. And so we definitely want to facilitate those types of conversations. And it can be interesting. I mean, Notion is another one that is like super hot and popular right now. And we've had people who are kind of digging into like why they think it's actually horrible. And What, does, and I think, what is
2: Notion and what do they do?
0: Oh, yeah. So Notion is, I guess kind of a the closest analogy would be Google Docs I guess so it's documents and but basically what they did was they looked at a lot of the different tools that are popular out there so Trello and Jira and other project management tools that let you look at like a view and drag cards from the to do to the done column and those things and then different new kind of like spreadsheet tools that are allowing you to like build more robust kind of pivot tables and and things within that are more user friendly than than like doing it in Excel, and then just like documents. And basically Notion has built this like pretty flexible tool that allows you to incorporate all of those things into one tool so the documents that can talk to each other and you can have a Kanban board that shows you the everything that your team is working on, but also can have like a calendar view of that exact same thing. And so it's, I don't know, maybe I'm not explaining it super well, but it's like that, Atlassian 2.0. That's maybe right. Yeah. And yeah, it's really good. We use it and really like it for a lot of things. And I think the most common complaint that I've seen about it is that they don't have any open APIs, so you can't integrate it with any other other tools. And that's definitely been a frustration for us. But yeah, but we had this comment that where a person wrote a whole long thing about, these are all the reasons that I actually think it's like, basically it, it kind of was summed up as by trying to like create this document platform that does everything, they've kind of ended up with a, a mediocre implementation of each of those things and so that's pretty interesting because we had been mostly hearing just positive people love this tool and and on Twitter I'm seeing it like that people love it and we internally were loving it and so it's fun to see sometimes those people who have a vastly different opinion and and we definitely try to kind of encourage that and again it's about the the kind of individual more than it ever was before. And so for you, when deciding what tool you're going to adopt, it is helpful to hear from the people who don't like it and hear why, because it's like, if you're picking a place to go eat a barbecue sandwich, then the average star rating is probably sufficient to say like, okay, this is going to be like, it might not be my favorite, or it might be the best one I've ever had, but I know it's not going to be like a complete disaster if they have four and a half stars or whatever. And I think with software, it just, it cuts way deeper and you want to read the reviews and and to read what people are saying and understand like is this person does this person look at these things the way that I do and if they do then then maybe I'm going to agree and actually think that this is not the right tool for me and so trying to facilitate those conversations and get a little bit deeper into the kind of instead of saying like salesforce is fantastic or salesforce is horrible but like getting into the the why and a little bit more depth around who it is fantastic for and who it is horrible for
2: One of the characteristics of SaaS is that it's easier to switch compared to traditional enterprise software, where you signed up for a six-figure deal from IBM and you have consultants and integration takes six months. Are you seeing evidence of this in reality of people switching quickly from one, I guess, cloud application decision they made versus another? We tried, for example, like we're on a live size for video conferencing and there's still a meaningful friction involved if we want to switch to another vendor. The thing that we—funny—you should mention Teams video quality. We've spent more and more of our video time, especially for one-on-one discussions, on Teams since it's just easier and it's built into the app and quality is pretty good. So this integration effect seems to still work pretty well. But generally, if you've committed to a CRM, if you're committed to a Team project management solution, is it really that easy to switch? Especially if you—if your org is, you know, a few hundred people at least.
0: So. I guess you got to think about how it was before. So you would have literally hardware installed in your office for the software that you're buying and and it it could be half a million dollars that you paid to actually onboard with that software. And so while there is still a lot of stickiness, there's just no question that it's easier than it was before to change and to turn and to and to try new things. And so we definitely are seeing in big organizations to make an organizational switch from one tool to a different one is a huge thing that takes, you know, months of planning and complex processes and all sorts of things and it's expensive. And so it's not the idea that companies are just switching left and right is the huge undertaking. But because a lot of these tools are you know, single player and are just like a small team can adopt them, and it's probably within discretionary budgets for a lot of people to like start using Airtable or Slack or whatever else it is that that they want to use and it might be you know if it's 7 dollars per user per month then a small team could just try it so that type of switching is happening quite a bit where it's like kind of bring your own tools almost so where where an individual or a team is just choosing to use something differently than what's being handed to them and that can again then create this pressure for a larger organizational change but it's still a pretty huge process for big companies to switch from one tool to the next. And it also depends on the category. So like whatever a thousand person organization is using for payroll is probably pretty locked in. And they're probably not out there like seeing what, what the hot new trend in payroll Mm -hmm. is and like planning to switch every couple of months or something. But if it's like, uh, like operations focused apps. Yeah, that's definitely true. But then, I mean, even like cloud hosting is, I mean we've seen some big companies switch from a w s to Google cloud, and that that is no trivial thing to do, but you know if the savings and everything is there it's if you compare that to when these companies had to run servers of their own and had and if they wanted to like switch to a different brand of server, that would be basically insane It'd be not even doable they'd have to buy everything all new hardware and this it's all easier to switch than it was before, but that doesn't mean that it's like just constant turnover. Gotcha.
2: You know, as a result of SaaS being so popular, the, the, the amount of company creation in this space has been absolutely just bonkers. It used to be I could name SaaS companies with one hand. I mean, I'm sure I didn't know all of them at the time. But now, during the last year, there's almost like one IPO a month sometimes. And valuations here, I'll just share my screen. But this is an interesting chart. This is a chart by our friends at Piper and just showing kind of the relative valuations of of how SaaS companies have evolved as a group. You know, the historical average is about seven and a half times sales for the next 12 months. Went through the super, super cycle in the end of 2019, where it hit almost 14 times sales. Um, And now, you know, coronavirus hits and everyone's getting sold off. So it's come back to earth a little bit at nine times. Do you think this space, obviously, a lot of investor money is being thrown in do you think it is getting a little too frothy? Is that kind of the tail end of last year, maybe a sign of the exuberance in this in this space? Or do you think there's a, still a huge amount of growth to be left and it's still early days for adoption for many of these tools?
0: So in terms of like the frothiness, I don't pay a ton of attention to like public stock markets. And, and so I don't know if I have really too much, of, when I look at these companies and what their market caps are relative to their earnings, for me to say like, whether those are, are overvalued or undervalued is pretty tough. But the one thing I will say is that I think we know that the number of businesses and business functions and processes that are taking place in the cloud today is massively more than it was 10 years ago, but also is like kind of just scratching the surface in terms of, of where it can go, especially on a global scale. And so I think that there is a ton more growth to happen here. And so whether that is like, how that plays into the kind of valuations at both in the private markets and the public markets of these companies, I'm not sure it'll be interesting. But I think, to me, when I see these companies, I mean, so recurring revenue is, is an interesting, obviously, is a much more predictable thing for these types of businesses. And again, it's, we talked about the sort of stickiness, there might be less than there was before. But at the same time, there is a pretty good amount of lock-in and the vendors are doing a pretty good job of of creating ways to kind of lock you in. And this is the thing that, that the Capiche community talks about a lot is like, which companies are making it very hard to cancel or have really kind of aggressive cancellation policies that, that end up charging you a ton of money to get out of it and things like that. And yeah, I don't know. I think there's plenty of room for growth, I guess, is, that, is kind of the short answer. There's so much more. And so I don't think the, whatever the markets do, I'm totally not sure. But I think in 10 years, there is going to be way more that is happening in the cloud than there is today. And that's going to be hopefully spread across lots of prosperous vendors, or maybe it'll start to consolidate again. And, and it'll be kind of a few people at the top because we've seen Microsoft pretty effectively. If you look at their growth of Microsoft Teams, Versus Slack, they you know they they have started to chip away there, and so we might see more consolidation. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting in terms of what that looks like, but I would say like. To the question, is this still a growth industry, a high growth industry? I would say absolutely.
2: What's the general reception for Microsoft among people of your community? They touch so many aspects of the SaaS chain everywhere, all the way down from infrastructure all the way up to you know super lightweight API-based services. And of course, they have GitHub, they have LinkedIn, they have Office 365. What is, does Microsoft have a unified reputation or is kind of scattered across all their products?
0: I would say it's pretty scattered. I think I think it's gotten better. I think, let's see. So, I mean, the GitHub thing probably helps. And yeah, I mean, going back to Steve Ballmer yelling on the stage about developers, I think that the developer community has kind of, that Microsoft has earned a lot of respect in the developer community. And I think in terms of the, a lot of the people in our community are, are sort of product nerds that really like well-built products. And I think Microsoft has, Burned some credibility by, in some cases, buying products that people love and shutting them down, which they did with with Sunrise, the calendar app, and I think they did that with an email app. I can't remember now which one it was, but yeah. So those things, and then I think if you're a large and somewhat old company like Microsoft is, you're going to be at a disadvantage when trying to convince the kind of leading edge people that you that you're building cool products. And so, given that, I think that they've done a pretty good job of earning a lot of of respect. I know for a while, the Outlook iOS app was really popular. I, I was, I think for like a year or two, I was using that as my main iOS email app on top of Gmail. So I wasn't even using Microsoft Exchange, but I was just using their app. And I think a lot of other people were doing that. They, again, are building some products that people like. And yeah, so we're seeing that. I don't know. I mean, there is the... Sometimes the knee jerk, just you roll your eyes at at those big organizations, and then sometimes people who are super into it and a little bit in between there as well.
2: You talked a little about Notion. Right now, people are pretty big on Slack, pretty big on Zoom, Airtable. We we use and it's been quite effective. What do you see coming down the pipeline in terms of apps that will that's still a little under the radar, but that's poised to become the next Slack, if
0: you will. So there are. A lot of like, so remote work, even before kind of all the quarantining and everything that's happening right now, remote work has definitely been like a hot thing. And so I'm seeing a lot of people building products for that. I have not seen any yet that I'm really convinced are solving problems that are, at least in my experience, having worked on remote teams for years, some of these tools don't seem to be solving the problems that we have and that I've seen. And so I'm pretty interested in kind of seeing how that plays out, whether it's like tools built for remote teams becomes a kind of category or if it just continues to be the, the best tools for in-person teams can oftentimes be the best tools for remote teams. And so in terms of things that are like really picking up steam, I mean, that's not a huge kind of focus because of our community. And so I think it's not like the product hunt where they are just kind of always showing you, here's what the like new cool thing is. And so we do see, a lot of that. We do have a a blog post actually where we were listing a bunch of the different products that have generated waitlists and I think command e is one that I've been playing with a bunch that's like a a search across all of your enterprise apps and I think that's pretty interesting but in terms of like spaces that I think where there's opportunity I think anywhere that the incumbents have been have kind of been locked in for a long time I think I mean like front is not new at this point and they've been around for for several years but you could sort of see Companies like Zendesk had been around so long. Yeah, Front is a customer service app, I guess, competing with Zendesk. And they've kind of become super popular, become kind of one of those new, shinier tools that is really building around the experience of the individuals who use it. And so I would say just anything that, that you're looking at from an enterprise adoption, because a lot of times these things don't start out with enterprise as their kind of core audience. And But I think the thing that is that makes the biggest difference is do the individuals who are using it enjoy it and does it make their workflow more efficient because oftentimes that just actually is not the case with tools that are selected in a top-down way and so those are the things that that we're seeing and it's like i actually saw one company that launched today that i think is pretty interesting called around i think it was around.co and it's like a i guess a zoom competitor so video video conferencing, but that looked like they had some cool, basically just some cool technology around like muting background noises, dogs barking and things like that. And then allowing you to have multiple people in the room on separate laptops on the same video conference and not having any like feedback on microphones and all of those things. And so I think those types of things are pretty interesting because that's, those are simple, somewhat minor problems. But if you can solve the annoyance of background noise and microphone feedback and some of those things and make, create a simpler video conference experience that feels a little bit more like an in-person conversation, that's pretty huge. And so I think those types of tools are pretty interesting. The one thing
2: I wish someone would solve, and I can't believe it hasn't solved yet, is concurrent speaking on video conferencing. Because it's always like someone tries to say something, oh, what? Oh, no, you go, you go. (laughs) It goes like, you can't both talk like in real life. And I don't know what it takes, but someone's got to solve that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I've been wondering about that too. Because you don't, it can be really hard to like chime in without it being jarring and you like completely stop someone in their tracks. And I think Zoom has like a raise hand feature. And so that could sort of work as a way then you're sort of called on. That's not as fluid as the way it happens in natural conversations. So yeah, I do agree that I don't know what the technology solution is there, but those are the types of things that I think are how we go from video conferencing today, which is pretty good to the next step, which hopefully will be that much closer to just like being in person. I hope so.
2: Well, maybe to close off, in right now, the news cycle is still totally dominated by coronavirus. What are your top tips for successfully working at home?
0: Well, actually, we have a blog post up on this the other day. So let me actually look because Matthew from our team wrote it, but he pulled a bunch of quotes from the community. And so let me just take a look at what he was saying. Let me actually just focus on, you could find the post on um, capiche.com. But if anyone wants to check it out, but I think for me, the thing that I've found to be most important is trust. And hopefully with all the teams that are now going from in-person to working remotely, then they maybe already have that. But I think what I've seen is that some people who are skeptical of remote work just automatically have this assumption that if someone's working from home, they're just sitting there watching Netflix. And if you come from that assumption, then you are going to be skeptical. And no matter how much a person reports kind of what they've done or you know how many like results that they actually achieve, you will still have that kind of base skepticism. And that just can't be the way for a team to operate. And so I think that that is the most important thing is just having a level of trust that the people in your organization are working on the things that they should be working on. And obviously, like, you know, all the same ways that with in an office that you would build lines of accountability and try to be results driven, you can do those same things. But the idea that people, A, that people who are working from home are slacking off, to some crazy degree, or be that people who are working in the office are not slacking off, both of those things are just not the case. <laughs> and, and so it, the reality is, like wherever your employees are, they can do all sorts of things that are not working, and they probably do sometimes. And so you should have the same kind of base assumptions. And it should start from a point of trust, not a point of skepticism, because that's one of the things that I've seen really cause problems where people are saying, like, report every hour of what you're doing or whatever. And because it's like, this paranoia that, that if someone's at home, then they could be doing whatever else. And that to me breaks down the whole idea. So yeah, I think trust is the most important piece.
2: That's a great point. Austin, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can our listeners find you, your work and your company?
0: Yeah. So Twitter is probably the best place to find me. My handle's is A-W-W-S-T-N, like my name, Austin, but spelled kind of funny. And then Capiche is C-A-P-I-C-H-E. So capiche.com. And that is about it.
2: Okay, awesome. If you have any questions, or if you want to know more about what enterprise tools you should adopt, or just learn more about the space, I highly recommend it. Austin, thanks again for joining us. And we'll catch you another time.
0: Thank you so much. Have a good day.